guest Tom Isley is a specialist in the esoteric arts. You can find him here at Enchantments. Uh, it's a shop located in the East Village in New York City. Before we get started, there's some business I have to attend to. We're brought to you by Savage Gold Coffee. That's my new coffee brand. We're into organic, sustainably grown coffee that tastes great. Head on over to savagegoldcoffee.com and buy a pound. Also, at the Everything Went Black media site, there's two portals. One will take you to Dotsasara. If you're into hemp equipment, bags, t-shirts, grappling shorts, things like that, you can go there and they'll set you up. Also, the second portal is to Onnit Labs, where you can buy nutritional supplements, killer food, exercise equipment, and things like that. So now I'm not going to waste any more of your time, and here we go with Tom Isley. So Tom, mainly uh, I've become aware of you just from being around Enchantments, the this, this shop here, which mm-hmm. is uh, an occult bookstore, sort of spiritual center, um, you know, they do tarot readings, things like that here. Mm-hmm. Um, and primarily, my assessment of, of you is you, you, know, you do tarot, you have books out, and you're, um, you're an author. And you're just sort of this uh, accumulation of um, this kind of uh, esoteric knowledge. Um, and in some ways, I guess you're an advisor as well. So what put you sort of on this path? Uh, like, How did you get involved in this, this, uh, you know, this, this journey that you're on? Well, um, as what I do professionally, it, it doesn't necessarily correlate to your average sort of job. You know, kind of like what interested you in music when I first time I heard the Beatles, whatever. Mm-hmm. It it's an accumulation of things. I mean, I had to live forty years of my life, really, um, and have things happen and direct me in certain places um, until eventually I ended up in a corner called myself. And at that point, you know, having been through a relationship and a and a, and a breakup and. And, uh, uh, you know, having done a job for a while that I didn't really care for, blah, blah, blah. I I just find myself in this corner, and I started self-exploration. And as I did that, I began to realize that points of view or information that I thought was common knowledge to everyone wasn't. Vis-a-vis, I discovered I had some level of psychic abilities, which I assumed everybody had. Um, and then once I made that realization, I wanted to hone those abilities. And the illusion is, you know, you start developing your psychic abilities, but really you're, you're beginning a spiritual path. And that's what psychic abilities are. I think in the modern day and age, they're looked at as a be-all and an end-all. They're not. They're just something that starts you on a path of self-discovery in an unordinary way. 
So that's really the best explanation I can give you because after that, things just happened organically. Um, I discovered tarot. From tarot, I went and started reading certain esoteric books. And then, uh, by necessity, I had to learn astrology. And it just kind of snowballed after that. But, you know, my eye on the prize was I want to know who I am. Um, I don't know if I can fully answer that question. I don't know if anybody can, but that was my impetus. Well, that's interesting because I think that most people struggle with that um, question as to who they are, actually. I mean, you know, you mentioned that you'd experienced 40 years of your life and you know, you're working a job that maybe you didn't care for. And then somewhere amidst all that was like this path of the truth of who you are. And I think a lot of people don't even ever find that in themselves. They might go through their entire lives um, never finding out really who they are and being distracted by like money concerns and family and pressures that society might put on them and that sort of thing. I think it's I think it's just how much punishment you're willing to take. I mean, how unhappy are you willing to get before you or you're willing to do something different? Yeah. So that was really there was there was I know like in my own personal experiences, uh, I change when I feel like my back's against the wall, like when things are so bad that I can't bear it anymore and I just need a way to get away from that feeling of negativity and that motivates me to do something different that's sort of maybe left of center of the way I normally would proceed with something. So I think that process happens for people because they look at the unknown as an enemy rather than a friend. You know, all creativity exists in the unknown. Without the unknown, we'd be doing the same thing over and over again. We'd be robots. And I think we're taught to fear the unknown because certain controlling interests, it's better for them if we fear the unknown because we'll keep doing the same thing over and over again and they can keep heaping more and more crap on us and we will put up with it because the unknown is where the enemy is. The unknown is not where our salvation is. You mentioned a couple of things that um, I know people were tuning into this podcast uh, may have some misconceptions about or just don't have a whole lot of knowledge about, you know, namely the occult and astrology and those terms. Um, you know, my understanding of the occult is that it refers to something that's hidden or unknown. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, I mean, could you sort of clarify some of that the way you see it? You know, astrology, the occult, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, the dictionary definition of the occult is that it's hidden wisdom. And really all wisdom is hidden until we find it. Um, occultism is a path to self-liberation and self-discovery. There are many ways to do it. All the major religious traditions have a hidden occult tradition. The problem when you have a bunch of liberated, individualized people is that they're very hard to control. So religion is a social phenomenon. It's a social contract. So to keep that social contract the less things you give people to think about, the better off they are. Occultism ultimately gives you a lot to think about because it makes you sit eventually in the vacuum of yourself and have to learn how to breathe. There is no oxygen line from your priest or your rabbi or your community center. You have to, have to be able to sit with yourself. And that ultimately is really what the only hidden knowledge is. Why can't you sit with yourself? What about astrology? You know, is that how does that fit into the um, picture here? People on Earth looked at the planets and figured, what were they? 
Right. And over time, they observed that when the planets were in certain positions, certain tendencies, certain things happened. Okay, that's basically what astrology is. Okay, astronomy is the study of the movements of the planets. Astrology is trying to pin an esoteric interpretation upon those movements. Okay, astrology now has become mainstream, commercial, new age. It's got its lingo, and what people seem to forget is the planetary aspects don't determine your life. Your choices do. But what the aspects can show you are what general tendencies are going on, and then you can see what general energies are affecting other people besides yourself. Because I think, I think the ego gratification society that we live in now, people make decisions based on what they want and when they want it, and no one's patient. They're not considering, well, what's the general flow of the society? What will the market allow now? You know, the real estate market goes down, a million real estate people come to enchantments, and they all want candles to sell real estate. And what they're, what they're looking at, they're, what, they're, what they're believing is that they exist in a vacuum and they're not part of a whole. And astrology points that out to you. You do exist in a, in, a, in a holistic environment. And it would be to your benefit to see what other factors are going on before you try to push your ego against the current. It's easier to go with the current. I, I, yes, I understand that. That's um, really just you know, the, the same way the planets are in these orbits that are related to each other. You know, either through the mass of one particular body moving through space and its gravitational pull on another body, and it makes up a system and not just a uh, sort of singular, you know, body moving on its own, you know, without any influence by anything, anything else. So, in, in a lot of ways, it's just really a, uh, a study on uh, being part of a system, really. And the thing is, astrology, the system of astrology, the, the tropical placida system, as mostly is used here in the West, is a fundamental abstraction. When you look at an astrological chart, it's a perfect circle. Okay? The, the solar system is not a perfect circle. It's right. an oblong disk. So as soon as you crunch it into a perfect circle, you have a fundamental abstraction about how fast the planets are actually going and what their actual relationships are. The retrograde phenomenons are optical illusions. No planet ever goes backwards. It's like when a faster train passes a slower train. Okay? Most tropical placidus charts are based on an exact birth time. Unless you're between the mother's legs with a stopwatch, you really don't know what the exact birth time is. So as these abstractions get put in, astrology is less of a science than astrologers would like you to believe it is. They want to become priests in our society like lawyers and doctors are. We have technical knowledge that you need and we'll charge you a lot of money for it. What you're paying for when you go to an astrologer is an interpretation. And if you develop your intuition, you can start to make interpretations too. Because really the only way you learn astrology is by learning the basic codes, the, per the basic info, and then studying your chart. Because you know who you are supposedly. So if you have a certain aspect, moon square Saturn, you'll know how it works because you live it as opposed to reading it in a textbook and then applying it in a menu fashion to everyone you deal with. In some ways, that's just sort of the, uh, the human, you know, mechanics anyway, because even, even, you know, language, everything is uh, basically an abstraction, Absolutely. a symbol that's used to quantify some of the things that we observe in our environment. Okay, and the reason I'm taking this, like, avenue as we're having this discussion is because eventually, on your spiritual path, you have to leave the symbols behind. 
you have to leave the rituals, the swords, the robes, the prayer mats, they all need to be left behind because essentially when you die, you take none of them with you except your consciousness. So in order to hone your consciousness down to what it truly is and what it's truly used for, you have to eliminate all the things you project your emotions are. That's a very Taoist point of view. And, and ironically, I think a lot of people, Alistair Crowley including, begin with occultism and end with Taoism because you eliminate things as you go along. And all you're really left with is understanding you're part of the Tao. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, when you're... It's almost like the training wheels version of everything where you have these tools that you rely on and someday you just, oh, I don't need these training wheels anymore. I'm riding a bike just with two wheels. And then someday you don't need the bike. And then someday you you reduce further and further down to needing less and less of these tools, which would be these abstract ideas. The fundam If you think of the fundamental image that you use of training wheels, yeah. how many times have you seen a kid learn how to ride a bicycle with training wheels, and the training wheels are left on too long, so eventually they're bent and they don't even touch the ground anymore? Yep, I've seen that. And if the parent removes the training wheels, the kid gets upset because they think they can't ride the bike without the training wheels, but the training wheels are serving no purpose anymore. They're not actually touching the ground anymore. Yeah. And, and uh, this is what happens with spirituality. This is what happens with religion. We get attached to the trappings of it and we lose the essence of it. We mistake the shell for the context. We make the sh mistake the shell rather for the core. The core is us. Um, we were talking about symbols. Uh, there are certain symbols that seem to be, you know, archetypes that go back, you know, like pentagrams or serpents, you know, like the Ouroboros, like symbols like that, which are recurring. It seems like. I mean, some some believe those symbols existed before our being, you know, before you know, you know humanity or our consciousness existed. Um, I don't know if I would agree with that okay. because those symbols are those symbols are directly linked to our ability to think mathematically. And when okay. I say our ability to think mathematically, our ability to think proportionately in terms of time and space. Okay. Time and space, we don't actually know if time and space it ex exists. Yeah. It is our, it's, it's our software. It's our perception mechanism. And using that perception mechanism, we have devised certain symbols that reflect the perfection we would hope to aspire to. Hence, sacred geometry. The whole Pythagorean concept of sacred yeah. geometry. All ba basically all sacred spiritual symbols are also sacred geometric symbols. Okay, they all follow the same mathematical rules. More or, uh, less. More or less. More or less, yes. And um, for my two cents, the ultimate occult occult symbol really is the enneagram. Um, at least in the Gurdjieffian sense, not necessarily in the more modern New Age sense. And what, what is that exactly? And an enneagram is a nine-pointed star okay. or a nine-pointed figure put in a circle so every point is 40 degrees apart on the arc okay and of those nine points the the uh the ninth the third and the sixth form a triangle which represents the natural flow of the universe yin yang unity and the remaining uh remaining six points can be uh connected in a non-ordinary manner which okay. would leave you with a very symmetrical but very odd looking figure and those six points represent our intuitive adjustments as reality unfolds. So it's, it's essentially 
a, a model or a map of how our consciousness moves through time because we have an illusion that we think linearly but we don't we don't think sequentially okay we think in a non sequential fashion for instance if you wanted to cook a dinner okay right in order to know what you need to cook the dinner, you have to know what you want to cook. So you have to envision the outcome before you can even choose the ingredients. Yeah, so you're projecting into the future. To and come back. And then you're building upon knowledge that you accumulated sometime in the past to sort of manifest this meal. And the then as you, as you do every step of the meal, maybe, you know, you don't throw the greens in the boiling water first because you'll ruin them. You throw the root vegetables in the boiling water first and you save the greens on the side. All of this planning, so to speak, is not sequential thinking. The only way we can think of it sequentially is to take a step back and see the whole process. But once we're in it, we have to adjust intuitively. So the Enneagram is, as a symbol, is a representation of that. So it shows how any system that's alive can perpetuate itself as time progresses. Because that's the definition of life, that it perpetuates itself. So it's sort of like this fractal kind of, uh, you know, Fibonacci number type... Uh... Yes, but the only, re the only way you can use the Enneagram is with something you already know. It oh, will allow okay. you for a deeper understanding. So it's not telling you something you don't know. It's just showing you an operating principle that can be applied to anything you know, so you can learn to know it better by realizing how it unfolds itself. So we, we touched on, uh, you know, reality and perception and uh, time and these sort of uh, slippery ideas that uh, we accept as, like, <laughs> em empirical fact. But the reality is that what we actually perceive as, you know, what we perceive as reality is a filter that our brains, our, our nervous systems have, like, uh, evolved to filter out certain things that, that are non-essential to our survival. So... You know, that, that's a, you know, I read that somewhere, I don't know. Well, I, I mean, I, I, like, I like the whole notion of, it, of, of reality and, and whatever being a slippery, slippery idea. It, it is. I mean, a child who, a, a, a four-year-old walking around who has a minimum of socialization, let's say you didn't send them to kindergarten, but they've been around the house and they've been around their parents or whatever, their concept of reality is so much different than the conditioned concept of reality of a 40-year-old person. Yeah. Okay, now we would think, well, the 40-year-old person is so much wiser and so much more knowledgeable, but imagine if they had the experience but could maintain the purity at any given moment and the openness of the child. Our socialization takes away our openness. That's, that's really what happens. It doesn't, you know, our conditioning is our surrendering. No one's taking anything away from us. One of the things that I've been uh, working with um, is this term called uh, unconditioned state, which is, uh, I don't know if you know Dennis and Terrence McKenna, like the, the no. writers are these kind of psychedelic, you know, writers. And uh, one of the things that they, they get into is um, societies. It was similar to what we're talking about right now. is like society's influence on how we perceive things, you know, which is exactly what you were saying when you were a kid. You know, you're four, or four years old. You don't have any of those layers of, you know, whatever trappings that the society you live, you live in put on you to sort of change your perception of the world. Um, does that actually ever really go away, in, or is it just obscured by all this other stuff? The problem, the oxymoron about conditioning 
is that the word itself seems to imply insidious intent, like someone out there is conditioning us. Well, well yeah, okay, I can okay. see that, but that's right. not really what I was saying. Yeah, right, I know, I understand yeah. that. A lot of times, conditioning allows us to manage our fear. And that's what I think most conditioning is about. You know, we're, we learn to follow the rules because if we don't follow the rules, then there's going to be controversy. And we fail to see that that controversy defines who we are. We think that controversy will inhibit who we are. So children, and, and this, is, this is why children are so easily damaged when their parents are not aware of themselves. Because though the parents may provide everything the child needs materially, by not acknowledging that the child is experiencing the parent's emotions as they're having their emotions, but the child doesn't have the equipment to interpret what they're seeing in their parents. So what they will do is interpret it based on the, ba the, 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 the model or the conditioning of, of conditional love. You do this and you're a good boy or a good girl. You don't do this and you're not a good boy or a good girl. Well, don't you want us to love you? And they get these mixed messages, and that's where the conditioning becomes really, really insidious, because it makes us always choose for comfort rather than honesty. And comfort gets us in a corner that's very hard to get out of. And that's the fundamental reason why people cannot, or people feel they cannot change their lives, because they have no language to deal with risk because risk is unsafe. Risk is tantamount to not having love. And then when you say to people, well, you must love yourself, you know, they've been taught to believe that there should be guilt around that. That's ego. That's, that's, that's selfishness. You know, the fundamental fact is that we're all selfish. We can't help but perceive through our reality tunnel. It's vanity or it's arrogance to think that our reality tunnel is true for anybody else. Yeah, it's all subjective completely. You know. Now, the thing is, we can, as you learn to deal with illusions and write yourself and find your own sense of balance, that's really all you can share with people. You know, in readings or when I deal with people, I never tell them what to do. It's none of my business what to do. They need to do what they feel they need to do. They're presenting me with conundrums that they have because they don't understand why they do this and it doesn't work out that way. And I'm just saying, you know... You're expecting it to work out that way because of what somebody told you, not based on what your experience is. So you're confused about something you've never actually experienced. So you're getting further away from wherever it is you think clarity is. So there's this intention that they go into it with, and that's what they're, they already have an idea where they want to go, and they think this is going to help them get there, as opposed to understanding like where who they are, what they've done, what their true feelings are about something. Sure. And I then, mean, yeah, okay. if you ask somebody what love is, yeah. they're going to give you a laundry list of outer material manifestations. That's what they're going to do. They're going to say, well, it's a family, it's this, it's that, blah, 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 blah. Okay, that's true on one level. Right. But on another level, I, I routinely say to people in, in readings, when you're in a relationship, there are two very important moments early on in the relationship that you need to pay close attention to. First is the first moment of silence. Okay, all the good behavior has been shown, intimacy has been attained, you're there, there's nothing but you and the other person in the space you're in. Well, how's that silence dealt with?
do you deal with each other? Do you surrender? Are you vulnerable? Or do you go to text message? You know? And, and then the second moment is the first disagreement. Are you discussing something to reconcile or are you trying to win an argument? And both of these approaches are from expectations. How do you feel that connects with ego as far as... Um... Ego is necessary, but, you know, food's necessary too, but you can get overweight. You can get constipated. You can eat all the wrong food and die young. Yeah. You know, it's, it's that way. I mean, our ego is totally necessary right. because we have it. The thing is, our ego can be an illusion. Our ego is necessary for survival, but it's not necessary for our enlightenment past a certain point because we have to learn how to let it go. Right. You know, surrender is a dirty word to most people because they think they will lose themselves. They will actually find themselves. What they will lose is the illusion of themselves. That's what they're not willing to surrender. That's a pretty disturbing paradox. That I'm not willing to let go of the illusion of myself, no matter how uncomfortable it makes me, because there's something glorious about my desperate individuality. That's interesting, because um, a big part of my, you know, my own personal practices has to do with, uh, you know, martial arts and combat. And, I've, you know, contrary to what some people who don't practice those sorts of things, it's really not about building up your ego it's about actually breaking down your ego because you learn how to lose the right way to people you learn that your idea about yourself and maybe your idea about you as a man or as a you know this sort of masculine um you know archetype is can be challenged and defeated by somebody else and it makes you see yourself in a more realistic light and it also helps you manage a lot of those, um, you know, those feelings of ego, and it makes me deal with other people in a lot better, a lot easier way. And a lot, you know, I find that I know that I'm not, I'm not invulnerable, and through that, through trusting the other people that I practice with, um, it, you develop that sort of trust mechanism. And then when I take that outside of, you know, the gym and apply that into my life, I find that I'm more, uh, more willing to trust other people. And I'm also uh, a little bit more um, aware of myself and what my limitations are. Mm. So, I mean, that's a physical sort of manifestation, I think, of like what you know some of these ideas we're talking about right well, now. Well, Sun Tzu in The Art of War says the best general is the one who does not fight battles. He makes them redundant. He makes them unnecessary. Because to have to fight somebody every, everybody loses yeah no you don't you don't fight a battle where someone doesn't die so both sides lose yeah. so the idea is how do we create a stalemate where reconciliation is the only viable way how do you take how do you, how do you cut off something so that a fight is not necessary that takes a certain amount of presence and awareness you know, and it, 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 it operates, I mean, a lot of times when I do readings with people, there's a certain amount of jujitsu that goes on. I'm, I'm not here to convince people. I'm not here to argue with people. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not here to tell people how to live their lives. I listen to what they present me, and I show, the, um, show them a mirror back of how two and two is equaling six in their, in their equation. And we have to rearrange some things. 
But even so, 2 and 2 does equal 4, but don't tell me that's the sum of my life. You know, in other words, you have to make people aware that there are more connections than they can consciously be aware of at any given moment, and that's what allows for growth. If you're assuming that you know what's impossible, then your belief system just doesn't have any windows. Tar tarot is like primarily your your the tool that you use to. Um, you know. I'll say yeah. I'll I'll say yes and no. Tarot is a tool that I use. Okay. Um, I also use astrology. Okay. Um, and then I also use the ability to read the energy of the person I'm with, and and I access um, their chakras for that. And then when um, when someone comes for a reading, they bring a crowd with them. They never come alone. So, invariably, names get mentioned, other energies get brought into the conversation, and I can access those energies as well. Usually, I save the tarot for the end because the tarot for me is a good summary device. Because when I lay out, I, I only use one spread that I designed for myself. When I lay out the cards, initially it's showing me did I hit all the bases I suppose, I'm supposed to hit. And if I see something there that I didn't hit, then I know there's more. But if everything I'm looking at is already basically outlined what I've said, then I know I've given the person what they need. Now, just um, as an aside, you know, there's a lot of people listening to this who probably, uh, you know, have their ideas about tarot and, you know, some people, it's quite popular these days, you know, mm -hmm. and there's like the, sim the symbolism and the sort of imagery is being used in a lot of different places. And um, so essentially, like what is tarot like where did it come from like you know i, th I think of like a you know traveling you know, gypsies and whatnot well fortune. The, the tarot is a very interesting thing um scholars to have jobs and sell books will tell you there's a history of the tarot there's really no verifiable history of it at a certain point they're gonna tell you the first deck was seen in the renaissance or in the medieval times at a certain date okay but just think about what the tarot is. It's this magical deck of cards that no matter what you think of, if you concentrate and then shuffle the cards a certain amount of times, you're going to pull up three cards, six cards, nine cards, whatever your spread is. You're going to pull up cards that are relevant to what your question was. That in and of itself is such a quantum and amazing phenomenon. The chances of some human being designing that deck as a whole thing from scratch is quite preposterous especially at the time it was discovered okay so this information came from somewhere we don't know what it is I think Alistair Crowley summed it up very well when he said the tarot has no verifiable history it's just a matter of does it work or not use it if it works it's true it's one of those mysterious gifts from the universe like the monolith in 2001 where did it come from? Why is it there? It gives us something. If we attach to it, if we open to it, then we become more than our current consciousness and we can grow into something else. It's this kind of ultimate esoteric salsa that draws from symbolisms of so many different things. And it fits perfectly like a glove into the tree of life. And likewise, it fits perfectly in harmony with the astrology.
it's a perfect tool. It almost doesn't matter what the history of it is. It's like it's like scientists trying to find the beginning of time. I can't think of anything more irrelevant. <laughs> well, that that's something you know. I think about things like that frequently. About you know the universe, whether or not it's infinite, whether or not there's a beginning and an end, and what's beyond the end. What's beyond like the farthest reaches of the universe? Like people claim that they oh the universe is like. However many you know, mil, you know, millions of light yeah, years that's, in that's, diameter. I'm like, how do you even measure something like that? How do you even come up with that number? I learned about the intellectual onanism of science when I used to work at Rockefeller University as a medical photographer. I, I one day I had to substitute and work AV at a conference on black holes. Oh yeah. And okay. you know, national experts on black holes were there, and I had to sit and listen to like 12 hours of black hole lectures. And after listening to all of that, basically what these guys were saying is, A, we don't know what a black hole is. Yep. We don't know what's in there. We only know it exists because we can measure everything known around it. And this is our theoretical formula for how to measure the depth of a black hole. And it includes, you know, infinite variables. Yeah. All right, what are you exactly saying to me here? <laughs> I, I mean, to me, this sounds like occultism. Basically, it just sounds yeah. like occultism that somebody managed to finagle a government grant for. All right? So, you know, we really need to keep this in perspective. We don't know what our consciousness is. We just know that we have it. Right. And this is why I have fallen in love with Taoism, because they make no such pretentious comments. Their attitude is, the true Tao is the Tao that cannot be known. If it can be known, then it's not the true Tao. Why don't we just realize we have to be something, part of something bigger, because we're finite. Yeah. And leave it at that and, and look at our finite experience as uh, maybe a reflection of something infinite. So why don't we find that, ref that infinite reflection in ourselves instead of trying to just finite our finiteness until we're, we're minuscule little grains of sand in our security and we think and we're, we're really just ostriches sticking our head under dirt, which is facts, and pretending that's the whole world. Well, that, that's the, you know, I, I look at both sides of the fence, like, you know, the sort of rational, material side and also the esoteric sort of spiritual side. I like to look at both at both ends of it, you know. Absolutely. You Rationalism know. Is, is necessary, but when, it, when, when logic becomes a religion, you're really worshiping ignorance. As I get older and have more experience in life, I tend to agree with that because, you know, there's, there's the, the trip that people have where our consciousness is just... You know, these are carbon atoms interacting with each other, and then this, uh, you know, un-sort of definable thing called consciousness springs out of that. But then when you push someone to, to actually define what that is, it turns into magic. They're like, well, well, it's just, you know, it's just the interaction of these neurons. That's all it is. It's speculative. It's like, you know, somebody, I remember reading a Time Life booklet once where they are saying, you know, however many million miles out there in the universe is a parallel universe where, you know, another version of you exists. Well, that that's... I mean, my God, you know, I mean, it's a very interesting concept. Let's make a movie out of it. It'll be tremendously entertaining, but are you really presenting that to me as facts and telling me that the tarot is nonsense? Yeah, that that's where it comes down. I mean, come like, on. You know, you hear, you know, some of these uh, guys like, you know, someone I look up to, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's like, you know, you know, the chairman of uh the, you know what's that the um the space center up there in, in, the, in the city anyway neil degrasse tyson everyone knows who he is he um 
you know, he, he's, he talks about, you know, multiverses and how in, if the universe was infinite, that there is every possible iteration of everything. And that's truly what infinity is. Can I relate an anecdote here? Just a sure. real, really short one. I, I, uh, uh, an instance happened to me about a year and a half or so ago on the PATH train. And I think it, it speaks really clearly to the nature of unknown phenomenon and where we can have pitfalls with it and what it's actually supposed to teach us. I was sitting in the PATH train. It's waiting in Journal Square. I look down the car, and I'm sitting in the corner, and the rest of the car is empty. A couple of people come in and sit down, so we're sitting there. At one point, I turn to my right, and I look, and a young black woman and a young white man come walking in the train. She sits down first. He sits down next. Okay. I look back, look at the person opposite me, look down at my shoes, wait a few minutes, look down the car again, and I watch the same exact thing happen. The young black woman walked in, the young white man walked in, they sat down one after the other. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> okay? I think as soon as you try to figure out what it means, you're either going to get scared or you're going to be wrong. I just let it be. My conclusion was the universe is showing me how it works beyond what my understanding is. I'm just going to internalize this and meditate on it and leave it be what it is. And I told a couple of people and people were like, wow, that's really amazing. Since that time, I have noticed certain changes in my ability to be of service to people, to give readings. I cut to the chase quicker. I seem to see angles quicker. I seem to understand people quicker. I seem to be able to see through the subterfuge of illusions in our lives and see, oh, well, this is what's really true in this instance. This is what I should be focusing on. Now, is this a direct correlation to that? I don't know, but unless my gray matter is rearranged, I don't get additional insights. So what's the best way to rearrange somebody's gray matter? Shock them with something they can't possibly understand. That forces things in our brain to kick in that our mundane sleepwalking reality will not force to kick in. So everyone experiences synchronicities, time anomalies, all kinds of weird stuff. Most people will shove it aside as being a hallucination. Some people will get scared and not want to think about it anymore. Some people will engage new hyperbole to a nauseating degree about it. And when these things happen, I find the best way to deal with it is just absorb it like you eat a meal, once you eat the meal, you forget about the meal. Eventually you gain the nutrients and you eliminate the meal. Okay? Let the universe come into you that way through these synchronous events, digest it, and then you'll see it come out as more profound shit than you're used to. It's a good analogy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, and, and this is what all occultism, this is what all New Age spirit, it's all pointing toward this. But it eventually brings us to a place where we have to be able to sit in the vacuum of ourselves and breathe and not suffocate and wait for an airline from our religion or from our best friends or our parents. We have to be able to sit in that, in that vacuum because when we eventually get to the reality of our passing from this lifetime, what do you think that is? I mean, maybe, maybe it was the healthiest alternative God could come up with to jettison us to the next level. Maybe it's like pulling a Band-Aid off. It happens really quick, and then everything's better. We don't know. 
But preparing yourself by letting go of fear and limitation now will also give you a richer life. So, dreams and our mind and what happens between the waking and sleeping state, like what, you know, like I'm someone who actually, I don't remember any of my dreams. I'm very rare that I remember any dreams. The vast majority of dreams are inner dramas. Okay. Okay. Um, And I think the stronger you're on a spiritual path, the more you've done some work on yourself the easier it is to get through the, the, uh, the imagery that your mind uses to speak to you. Occasionally, though, in the dream state, we will encounter something that we know is not us. Okay. That's an astral experience. Okay? When I say it's not us, it's happening in our mind, but there's also what the psychologist Carl Jung referred to as the universal mind which the Taoists would simply call the Tao. Every once in a while, you get out of the small drama of your little head, and you get into the greater universal drama of the universal consciousness. That's an astral experience. Now, out in that universal consciousness are the things we know as gods, orishas, saints, whatever you want to call them. Okay, These are not us, but they're also not separate from us. Their reality is contingent upon us, as ours is upon them. They're not us, but they're not separate from us. Like what? I'm, I'm, having, a, I'm having a hard time with that. Well, there. I'm sitting here as a person in front of you with a white T-shirt on and black workout pants, mm-hmm. and as an actual physical entity, I bear no relation to the Orisha Oya. There's no connection there. Okay. okay. Yet in the dream state. I can imagine that Arisha coming to me and talking to me, and I can feel something from her. And I can, and then when I awake and, and see a statue of her, I can realize that I have a very deep heart connection to that. So it's not me in the sense of we think of me, but it, it also is me beyond the sense that I would think of me. Because I have to be something greater than me. Because remember, we have this consciousness and we don't know what it is and it doesn't die. I don't know what happens to it, but it doesn't necessarily die. And anyone who, if you're on a spiritual path, or if you're not on a spiritual path, and you've had anyone close to you that you've loved deeply die, you'll realize that they don't go away. They just get different. Because we can access it, and we can access it as real as realistically as when they were alive, and it's it's kind of there's no way to explain that experience, and eventually all spirituality boils down to each of us has to have an experience, and without that experience, it's just a lot of blah blah blah. So for me to say something oxymoronic like it's me, but it's not me. The words leave that flat, but the experience, once you've had it, will make it crystal clear. And and I don't think these experiences are inaccessible to people. I think people have these experiences on a fairly regular basis. We're taught to fear them. And that's where, like, these more sort of traditional religions sort of come into play, where they, you know, for example, like Christianity and, you know, the Judeo-Christian monotheistic world... You know, they want to explain everything to you, but then when you do have an experience that falls outside of their 
little box. Well, then also, then then there's a, well, then then there becomes a dividing line with experience because you know something like a Seventh Day Adventist. I mean, they flop on the ground and get Jesus all the time. Just go to one of their meetings, okay? They, that, that's not Jesus. Jesus is not in them. What's happening is they are surrendering to a lower a lower urge they have to become an infant again and let something else control them. They don't realize that's an aspect of their lower nature. Essentially, that's demonic. Oh, okay. You know, demonic just being our lower nature, the part of us that does not want to evolve, the part of us that actively is is just is totally satisfied with creature comfort. Which that's I, the reptilian it, brain. That's that's what a lot of that kind of stuff is. But they yeah. would they believe that a higher power is coming into them. Do you? I have a hard time wrapping my mind around the notion of a true higher power wanting people to humiliate themselves, wanting people to look absurd. A higher power wants us to be open, wants us to realize that there is no difference, that we can calmly do this. We don't have to be judgmental. We don't have to polarize the universe into good and evil. So it, that almost reminds me of like what the Gnostics believe sometimes, where there, there's the you know, the sort of inversion of like the God that they being the sort of negative of of some of these things. Like when I think of Christianity, and I think of how how many wars are fought, how many people have died in the name of Christianity, you know, and how many people have suffered as a result of that. It's really interesting to think about the Gnostics and how they do the inversion of was it Yahweh. Is, is the God and he's actually the devil and sort of manipulating man into chaos and when I, when I look at you know religious people or Christians in general and you know, even even today there's like conflicts in the Middle East between Jews and Muslims and Christians and how the name of God has always been this sort of destruction and chaos really not enlightenment or sort of like a asper, aspiring to be a higher version of yourself. When you anthropomorphize God, he's never going to be the best person. Yeah. Okay. That's really what people are doing. I mean, God is not a concept. You know, when a Jehovah's Witness knocks on my door and wants to talk about God, it's like, you have no idea what God is. Neither do I. So, really what you're asking me is if I will be part of your indoctrination. No, thank you. Have a nice day. Let's not even bring God's name into this. You know, we don't know what God is. God is something, and I'm not going to trivialize it and say God is something we invented. We couldn't invent it. It's just a concept that we wrap our minds around and we think we understand something. God is what is unknowable. And is this, the quicker we realize that there is something unknowable out there that's somehow benevolent to us, then we'll have the courage to surrender ourselves. Until then, it's just an ego fight. Well, there's a book called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. I don't know if you've ever heard of that book. Good title. And it's I've basically, um, once again, I'm doing horrible with names, Allegre. The guy's last name is Allegre. And uh, it's essentially a story about how you know, basically Christianity sprang from a bunch of, you know, this mushroom cult, basically, where, you know... You know, you asked me about the history of the tarot before. Yeah. The history of religion is a very, very slippery slope. Yeah. More so than normal history, the history of religion is written by the conquerors. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um... Human consciousness has developed pretty much haphazardly and willy-nilly all throughout time. Okay, 
what represents a true evolution of consciousness is always a quantum leap. You know, the hundred monkey theory. Uh, where, where you know, on, on an island, there's a hundred monkeys who all peel their banana a certain way, and one monkey decides to do it differently, and then all of a sudden, on another island, 20 miles away, that has no contact with the previous island, all the monkeys start doing the banana the other way, too. We're very much like that. In order for a quantum leap like that to even be a conceivable possibility, there has to be some notion of higher being or higher connectedness. Okay. We realize our realization of any degree of that has to necessarily be a quantum leap. It's not. It's not like walking up steps. It doesn't happen like the like the workings of a watch with lapidary precision. It's a quantum leap. And and all throughout history, humans have been going on quantum leaps. Sometimes they go forwards. Sometimes they go on quantum leaps backwards. I mean, how do we know Atlantis didn't exist? Well, it's conce actually, <laughs> it's conceivable that a civilization could have existed even before Atlantis that was ultimately supremely advanced and completely destroyed itself. Hell, we're on the verge of yeah, being able to do that. I, I was going to lead into that. I mean, because I mean, even even you know, extinction events that have happened that's documented, like these huge craters where like you know, comets have smashed into the planet and you know, caused extinctions. You know, and if you think about our society the way it is, there's nothing. We don't have you know, paper like. That's going to last like, you know, a month and it's going to be nothing. And now, books, all of our whole nature of our of our culture is in this intangible cloud. You know, everything's digital. So if we got hit by a comet or some tidal wave came and destroyed our civilization, in, a no, just in five years, there would be no traces of anything. You know, like a hundred years. As, as a corny aside, have you ever seen the, the Steven Spielberg movie AI? Oh uh, yeah, the, actually, the ending yeah, of that of is quite intriguing because actually the planet has been devastated, mm -hmm. and these uh, these interdimensional ET kind of beings come, and the only way they can access anything that's happened is by is by accessing the memory system of the little robot boy because he's the only thing that's left of humanity or anything that humanity made. So basically, they reconstruct an environment for him to be in. In which the case they will start to do further research and try to reconstruct what our society was, and it's only based on, you know, gaining gaining access to to essentially what's a, a computer file and a robot, which is a metaphor of our consciousness. The whole world exists within us, and every human being is an accumulation of that. So you know, you go look at the TV show Lost. I mean, if you throw all these people on a desert island that seems to be in another dimension, they all have the total accumulation of themselves, and they will eventually start to reconstruct a society that will be more quickly sophisticated than the original version because they are products of the original version. They may not. That may be a while before they get the proper materials, but they will get to certain concepts quicker, like central plumbing. It won't take them 500 or 1,000 years yeah. because they come from central plumbing, so maybe they'll get it set up in six months. And, and our advancement will allow this to happen, but this is, all, this is all physical. You know, the important thing to recognize is that everything operates from consciousness. Consciousness is the center of the wheel, and within consciousness is everything. We only access it by degrees. Yeah, I mean, our DNA is a, a record of all of our past ancestral sort of, you know, that, that's, that's a basically, you know, a hard, a hard drive of, you know, molecular imprinting of who we are, really. You know what? I, I always have, as an occultist, as a, dare I say, mystic, 
always have my problems with DNA coding okay. in the human genome. Okay. You know, it's kind of like there's a there's always a spiritual component lost. It's it there's there's a tendency to reduce things to a mechanical level, and the reason I say a spiritual component is lost is because you can't mix species. Right. You, know, yeah, you know, science fiction deals with this all the time, and I cannot believe that real people haven't tried to do this just in behind some very tightly closed doors. But you can't mix species because there isn't a full awareness there to complete the experiment. The scientists don't have the full awareness because they're looking to they're looking to reconstruct the whole from the sum of its parts. That's where we will always be arm's length from any consciousness we could consider godlike because we're trying to reconstruct God. We're trying to reverse engineer God from ourselves. No, it's like instead you, of opening know. ourselves up to to realize that the unified consciousness becomes that all these disparate things can exist in perfect harmony. That's the unified consciousness. The idea is to not unify it into a single thing because we're making it smaller. Well, it's sort of like a the, you know like a pea soup or something like that, where you have you know you got some peas and carrots and like you know bits of bacon. Exactly, but are you going to pull all the essence of that into one little kind of chip of generic food that has everything in it? I mean, that that really just makes us, in the face of eternity and God, ridiculous. You know, the idea is we should be using we should be using genetic stuff to realize how we can eliminate how we can better surf our imperfections, not eliminate them. Because when you start eliminating imperfections, you start getting back into master race. You start getting back into Nazism. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. You understand what I mean? Yep. That's the discomfort. Because humans are humans. You know, I mean, we exhibit the best and the worst. And you give us too much power, we're going to go to the worst place with it at some point. We've already seen what happens with that. We've already seen what genetic what genocide does. And when you start messing around with DNA and you start cross-pollinating things, it's a form of genocide. That's that's that uh, there's a part of me on a spiritual level that is morally repulsed by this stuff because I see the capacity in it for creating certain physical ends but setting us back morally and and ethically a long ways. Because we start justifying things and we start eliminating our emotions and our natural sense of love and acceptance of difference. Are you familiar with Ray Kurzweil? Like no. he's a, he has this concept uh, called the singularity, where you know his belief is that uh, machines and you know biological life are going to meld into this like new life form, and that our consciousness can be. It already is. They're called human beings. Human beings are machines, make no mistake about it. The human body is a machine. It's the most perfectly working, organic, soft, warm machine we've ever seen in our lives. It has no hard edges, really, except for bones. Okay, but it's inhabited by a consciousness. You yeah. never inhabit a machine with a consciousness. No, that, that's where I think I was, his. That's where his literal idea is that. Um, you know, essentially, he's after more you know, immortality. He wants to eradicate. 
death. And he has no our... conception of what immortality is. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, I, I don't mean to sound judgmental there, but I, I'm at a point in my life now, I'm pushing 60 years old, mm -hmm. I'm at a point in my life where I like to identify preposterousness, arrogance, and ego for what it is. Okay. It is not, it, we can't even understand immortality. Well, I, I think about that too, and I'm like, I don't. I think being alive I mean, forever would be miserable. Actually, I, think I mean, we have be, no conception yeah. of what that would be. Yeah. We really have no conception yeah. of what that would be, and and it's a, it's beside the point because if we can't love and we can't be in harmony with our environment in any given moment, what is is life everlasting with that ignorance except pain everlasting? So keep involved in the moment. Let eternity take care of itself. I think mystics learn to trust that. You know, mystics are willing to accept that everything fits. They don't really need to start figuring out how every widget works with every other widget. It's an, it becomes an illusion of knowledge rather than knowledge. It makes us smaller. Yeah. I mean, I get bored as it is. So if I had unlimited amounts of time to exist in this world or, you know out in the stars somewhere I'm sure even that would get boring to me I think you live as learn as the le I think you live as long as the lessons you're here to learn yeah and maybe you need a little time I don't know I, I mean again I don't pretend to understand you know I, I the other day I was thinking we know about as much as an ant on the sidewalk that's about to be stepped on it has no idea but in its own world it's master and I think, I think it's a really, I, I, I try to keep that kind of healthy outlook. It helps me not get emotional and stressed out about things that are infantile, ultimately, you know? Yeah, I think it was, um, was it Isaac Newton, you know, there's, there's this quote I read, and it was sort of just to put things in perspective where, you know, he was stating that, you know, I think science has pretty much everything figured out right now. And that was right around the time where they had Newtonian, you know, physics. Which, you know, was like works within a very small microcosm. But then, you know, Einstein came along with his theories of relativity and disproved that, you know, in a larger, in a large, that when you go macro, that stuff doesn't work. When you go into the world that we live in, yeah, sure, if you want to build a bridge, physics is great. Newtonian physics works if you want to heat, boil water. You know, but when you start looking at, you know, galaxies and like how, you know, light changing its speed and all that stuff, then Newtonian physics like falls apart. So, I mean, it's just that sort of, like, hubris that humans tend to have where they think they can explain everything. And to add this to, mystics can have as much or more hubris. You know, well, I mean, humans across the board. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm mean, not it's, saying this is not, this is, it's not necessarily mysticism. limited to science. Yeah. Mystics, mystics can be quite a preposterous lot themselves. At least people that outwardly profess to be mystics. I mean, I said it a few minutes ago, but you probably won't hear me say it again for another 10 years. <laughs> Uh, so, on the, on the writing front, you have three books published, and you have another book coming out soon, right? Um, no, actually, it, it, the 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 fourth book coming out soon is not it's not a done deal yet. Oh, okay. But it's completed. It's with the people that need to have it. And, okay. Uh, but it's written. Yes, it's it's written, and I think it 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 marks a progression in the sequence. And I have no reason to believe it won't be published. But then again, I don't like to say something is what it is until it is. So what? What are the? I've only read uh, you know one of your books. Right. You know. The first, my first book is entitled Modern Magical Keys. Okay. Okay, and um, it it really represents a point in my life where I had 
been studying occultism for several years, and and I was very enamored of the system of Western, uh, West, the Western esoteric movement, which is essentially Kabbalah, astrology, and tarot. So the book kind of presents those three systems as three dialects of a language called magic, and um, you know I go, uh, I present some basic concepts of Kabbalah the major arcana of the tarot and basic concepts of astrology and then using those symbols I outline how uh, an individual can create a talismanic image using that symbolism for personal transformation okay that that's was the limit of my experience and knowledge up until that point the second book is called Liber Quantum and that's when I kinda got past the dogmatic stage of working with the occult information and started to think more theoretically about it in terms of my own unique experience. So then I started explaining, you know, why I believe the tarot works based on a certain mathematical progression that's sacred geometric, etc., etc. It sounds rather complex, but I pride myself on, on really trying to explain things to people in very uh, uh, understandable and down-to-earth terms. Um, and then the most recent book, uh, The Exalted Man, was inspired by the untimely death of a friend. And it's, um, it's a collection of haiku. And I found that after someone that I was friends with died, who was also a fellow occultist, that death has a way of challenging all these notions you seem to trumpet to yourself on a daily basis about eternity and the holy guardian angel and all this other stuff. Death is kind of really makes you sit and take stock and realize you really don't know shit. So in that place, I said, okay, what do I know? And what is the clearest and most minimal way I can express what I know I know? So I wrote 161 haiku based on my perceptions of reality, my perceptions of, of various experiences, there's a lot of references to occultism there that are that are hidden for people who would know occultism. In some cases where I thought it would enhance uh, uh, the meaning of the individual haiku for whoever the reader is, I included footnotes in the back for some of the information. Um, and the most recent book that I've completed, I've, I've made an attempt to write my own version of the Tao. Not an interpretation of the original Tao Te Ching, but uh, 81 prose poems that are based on <clears throat> my experience of of how I have broken my own consciousness down and then rebuilt it in terms of relating it to an, out an outer world. Again, I try to keep the language very minimalistic. I imitated the, the tone of the Tao. It's a total homage to the Tao, but it's my limited viewpoint such as it is, but uh, my limited viewpoint may be useful to some people. And that's that's pretty much my publishing history at this point. Uh -huh. I'm currently working on something else, uh, but I'll kind of don't want to talk about that so much now. Sure. Well, that was great. You know, but thank you for taking your time out. You know, today's your day off. And You're very welcome. And, you know, I uh, you know I really really appreciate that. We we've been trying to do this for a while, and our mm -hmm. schedules haven't really you know coincided. But yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to air my opinions. I hope the people that are listening out there that hear this benefit in some way from this or if at the very least, it, even if you disagree with me, 
if it makes you think about what your what your argument is disagreeing with me, then I'm thankful for that too. Some of the people that probably listen to this, uh, you know, are probably interested in Satanism. I imagine. Oh well, I mean, let's not talk about that because <laughs> they're not going to like what I have to say. Say it. You know, I, I have very pretty negative ideas about that too. Really, I mean. Oh you know. well, I mean. You know, I think Israel. I think the occult writer Israel Regardi summed it up pretty much. Satanism is basically puerile nonsense. It's it's childish. It's you know, it's kind of like because Christianity exists, you're going to be outrageous in the other direction. It's a polarity. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like God is not a polarity. Well, that's pretty much my. A idea God is about not a polarity. It, you know? know, I mean, if you want to practice Satanism, I believe you should be able to practice whatever you want as long sure. as you're with consenting adults. You're not taking advantage of children. You're not victimizing anybody. Hey, do whatever you want. Well, there, there's also like there's um, practitioners out there who are more, even though even though Anton Lavey is like sort of a you know a circus act really, but they take that sort of you know just so, you know deal with the consequences of your actions and use it as this more of like a um, you know do what you want, but there's consequences. You know, rather than like worshiping some horned god that's like an inversion of Jesus Christ, you know. There, have you seen the, the most recent Martin Scorsese movie, The King of Wall Street? What is it? Uh, not yet. I want to see that well, though. Well, the Wolf, Wolf of Wall, Wall Street. Street. Okay. Yeah. When I saw that movie, it's a funny movie. I enjoyed it. But yeah. my take on it was that's Martin Scorsese's inner frat boy movie. Okay. Okay. I think Satanism is a lot of people's inner frat boy fantasies. Yeah. I'll go with that. That's that's kind of what I, I look at it as. It's it's essentially worshiping a form of imbalance. Ego is an imbalance. You know, past a certain point, ego becomes imbalanced. And if you're worshiping that, where do you think it's going to lead? You know, sacred geometry is based on certain proportions. If you draw a, par a pentagram in perfect sacred geometric proportions, you can keep drawing a pentagram inside the pentagon of a pentagram forever. It just depends upon the sharpness of your pencil. Or you can expand it eternally forever. Do you think you could do that if any one of the measurements were out of balance? Eventually it would collapse on itself. It may take you a while. You may be able to fudge it. You may actually be able to cheat for a while and nobody will notice it. But it will collapse. And that's kind of what... Anytime you worship one polarity, that's where you're going. Whether it's the God polarity or the Satan polarity. Yeah. Because if the God polarity does not allow our inner darkness as a necessary right of transformation... It's fluffy bunny philosophy. Yeah. That's really all it is. No, I tend to agree with that because I think Satan is so, you know, Satanism is so concerned with, you know, railing against the Christian God that it validates the Christian God, you know, just in their own little minor dog, dogmatic terms. Well, I mean, also, just think of the notion. I mean, he, you know, sitting here in Enchantment Studios, you can imagine we get some strange customers on occasion. Sure. <clears throat> and I... More than, on more than one instance, young teenage boys, you know, wearing heavy metal regalia will come in here and say, you know, do you have anything that we can buy to invoke Satan? And, you know, I mean, no, we don't. Thank you. Okay, they leave. You, you want to just say to them, you little schmuck, do you have any idea what Satan is? What do you think that means to invoke Satan? Don't you think you would get, like, asshole raped? into eternity yeah. if you did that? What do you think invo You think he's going to be happy to see you? No, you think yeah. he's not going to see you as a piece of chicken? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's like, really, think about what you're asking. But they don't because they heard somebody in a song say it. So the programming is not always from Big Brother. Sometimes the programming is just from bright, big ignorance. Yeah. 
that's awesome because like you know I tend to agree with that you know I just think that to, to, to worship or to, to embrace something that's like so negative and against life too is just something I think is a complete waste especially of time. when you're alive yeah especially when you're alive <laughs> we, live, we live in a physical world you know, it's just it never ends yeah, well just, you know then again let's leave them an out maybe they're doing this because it's tongue in cheek Maybe there's a wryness to this. Maybe this is ultimately a sarcastic statement, and they're like Alice Cooper at home. They just really drink beer and want to be homebodies and watch the TV, but go out in public, and we're going to wear our Satan gear and decide we want to destroy the society. I mean, I like to give people that kind sure. of an out because everybody's, yeah, everybody seems to be playing a role these days. Well, I mean, that's that is that's how I look at like guys like Anton LaVey. Like his, the Church of Satan is like this sort of wry, you know, ironic Satanism. You know, because it's not really well, it's just like a bunch of celebrities, really. The, yeah, the Church of Satan is an outcropping of of this, you know, the the psychedelic '60s. All you know, in the '60s, everybody was tongue in cheek about everything. I yeah. mean, Wavy Gravy was the mayor of Woodstock during the festival. Have you ever seen Wavy Gravy? I mean, you know, it's like everybody was doing something like that. You know, yeah. I mean, the Rolling Stones did their Her Satanic Majesty's request. Did you see the looks on their faces in the Altamont movie? Yeah, Do you see was, how scared the, you they are? Satan, that Satan murder. Did, did you yeah. see how scared oh, yeah. they were on the brink of chaos and yeah. how they ran their little white asses off the stage oh, yeah. about as quickly as they could? You know, there's the idea, there's the romantic idea, and then there's the actual reality. And I think, you know, um, I think when people are younger, they're idealistic and they're stupid. When they get older, I think you can still be idealistic, but you get wiser. Yeah. And you realize that evil is just our worst tendencies. And really, why do you need... I mean, we if we explore them out of ignorance to learn a better lesson, then there's a reason for them. But if we're exploring them, believing we're fully aware of what we're doing and thinking it's cool, you know, ask Mick Jagger what it was like to stand on the stage and watch a guy get murdered in front of him. Ask him if he thought that was cool. I guarantee you he didn't. I guarantee he didn't either. Yeah. And and that's what they look at as the unfortunate closing of the 60s because at some point all of these illusions kind of ran out of gas except for the more essential ones. You know, and some of the people from that time ended up affecting the society in other deeper ways. And some of those illusions just died right where they were. And the, and the things that were really going on in that period that could have really affected something, like what the Berrigan brothers were doing, I mean, people aren't even aware that, though, that, that, that until their death, the Berrigan brothers spent the majority of their life in jail for, for you know, activist prankster crimes against the military-industrial complex. They weren't selling a lot of records, but they were representing a point of view that is about the only thing between us and a complete corporate takeover of our entire lives. And because of their work, a lot of activists that are working by arms and scenes are aware of them. But people confuse a lot of the, the fashionable stuff in the 60s, like the Church of Satan or Wavy Gravy, for, yeah. like, that was progressive? It was a clown show. It was a carnival. Yeah, I mean, you know... It had cool imagery, you know. There's a lot of like. Oh, nice, absolutely! Nice I love the music. You know, I'm totally sold on the music. Young women but involved. <laughs> it's know? it's 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 a carnival, and we see it going on now. We see carnivals now, you know. I mean, the invasion, the first invasion of Iraq, shock and awe, was a fucking carnival. It was a deadly carnival, yeah. and people detached from the fact that hundreds of thousands of people were getting murdered while we were watching a fireworks display. Yeah, well, that, you know, on the heels of 9/11. 
everyone's all riled up and they want blood and then but they're not actually giving like they're not actually experiencing real carnage they're seeing like this electronic sort of representation of something that's happening thousands and thousands of miles away well you know what to bring us full circle that's occultism you know what the ultimate talismanic occult symbol is a credit card Explain it. I'm not catching up. It represents something that doesn't exist. You don't have the money. You have the credit. Ah, yes. Okay. And from that, you flash that talisman with your intention, I want, I want, I want, and they will give and give and give. But on the back end, you pay the piper. So that's why when people here come in the store and they say, well, I want my my ex to leave his current girlfriend and come back with me and you say to them we don't do that because there's a back end to that and we don't want to be involved they don't get it yeah. well they'll get it in terms of their credit card when they get the bill and the collection agency starts coming after them and that talisman is enacted by a higher power that wants us to be economic slaves and it works it works very well the magicians that thought up the credit card are the great black magicians of the 20th century that's awesome. That's a great way to end on that note. <laughs> well, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate your time. You're yeah, very welcome. Yeah, I enjoyed it. That was great. <laughs>